What I want, peeps, what I want is Valerie's Naturals Oracles. And today we're reading The Road Less Travel and we're on the last day. Can you believe it, people? I think it's section four, which is about grace. And I think it's part eight of section four, which is the last part. I think it is. Please, please correct me if it isn't. And comment below or comment somehow. Let me know. What did you think about this book? Because as I said, it's a psychiatrist's view of spiritual growth and spirituality in general. And how if a, a patient that he has is not going on that journey, how it affects them mentally, either, either consciously or subconsciously. And then after this, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the book I'm going to start reading tomorrow. And hope you'll join me for that too, because it's highly interesting and one of my favourite subjects. But anyway, we'll get to that. So the road less travelled. So it's entitled today, The Coming of Grace. So this is the last section of, of um, part four. So it's called the, well, sorry, not the coming of grace, the welcoming of grace. So, and we are left again following a paradox. Throughout this book, I have been writing of spiritual growth as if it was an ordinary predictable process. It has been implied that spiritual growth may be learned at one might learn a field of knowledge through a PhD program. If you pay your tuition and work hard enough, of course you will succeed and get your degree. I have interpreted Christ's saying, many are called but few are chosen, to mean that very few choose to heed the call of grace because of the difficulties involved. By this interpretation, I have indicated that whether or not we become blessed by grace is a matter of our choice. Essentially, I have been saying that grace is earned. I know this to be true. At the same time, however, I know that not the, that's not the way it is at all. We do not come to grace. Grace comes to us. Try as we might to obtain grace, it may yet elude us. We may seek it out, we may, we may seek it not, yet it will find us. Consciously, we may avidly desire the spiritual life, but then discover all manner of stumbling blocks in our way. Or we may have seemingly little taste for the spiritual life and yet find ourselves vigorously called to it in spite of ourselves. Why on one level we do choose whether or not to heed the call of grace. On another, it seems clear that God is the one who does the choosing. Now, when he says grace, in all of this, I should have mentioned before, when he's talking about the call to grace, he's talking about the call from spirit, from spirit or from divine or God or whoever you want to call it. But he's calling it grace in this instance. So I'll carry on. I should have said that before, but the common experience of those who have achieved a state of grace on whom this new life from heaven has been bestowed is one of amazement as their, con as their condition. They do not feel that they have earned it. While they may have a realistic awareness of the particular goodness of their nature, they do not ascribe their nature to their own will. Rather, 
They distinctly feel that the goodness of their nature has been created by hands wiser and more skilled than their own. Those who are the closest to grace are the most aware of the mysterious character of the gift they have been given. Hear, hear. I was given the gift of tarot. But you know that if you're one of my, <laughs> if you are one of my Patreon collective, I call it a gift. But anyway, let's carry on. How do we resolve this paradox? We don't. Perhaps the best thing that we can say is that while we cannot will ourselves to grace, we can by will open ourselves to its miraculous coming. We can prepare ourselves to be fertile ground, a welcoming place. If we can make ourselves into totally disciplined, holy, loving individuals, then even though we may be ignorant of theology and give no thought to God, we will have prepared ourselves well for the coming of grace. Conversely, the study of theology is a relatively poor method of preparation and by itself completely useless. Nevertheless, I have written this section because I do believe that the awareness of the existence of grace can be of considerable assistance to those who have chosen to travel the difficult path of spiritual growth. For, these aware, for this awareness will facilitate their journey in all least three ways. It will help them to take advantage of grace along the way. It will give them a surer sense of direction and it will provide encouragement. The paradox that we both choose grace and are chosen by grace is the essence of a phenomenon or serendipity. Serendipity was defined as the gift of finding valuable or agreeable things not sought for. Buddha found enlightenment only when he stopped seeking for it. Now, I know this story because I'm into Nietzschean Buddhism, but I'm not going to go there. This is what the next book is about. But when he let it come to him, so when he stopped seeking for it, when he let it come to him. On the other hand, who can doubt that enlightenment came to him precisely because he had devoted at least 17 16 years of his life seeking it 16 years in preparation he had to both seek for it and not seek for it the furies were transformed into the bearers of grace also precisely because orestes both worked to gain the favor of the gods and at the same time did not expect the gods to make his way easy for him it was through this same paradoxical mixture of seeking and not seeking that he obtained the gift of serendipity and the blessings of grace. This same phenomenon is routinely demonstrated by the manner in which patients utilize dreams in psychotherapy. Some patients, aware of the fact that dreams contain answers to their problems, will avidly seek these answers by deliberately mechanically and with considerable effort recording each and every one of their dreams in a complete detail and will literally bring their session realms rooms of dreams but their dreams are of little help to them indeed all this dream material may be a hindrance to their therapy for one thing there is not enough therapy time to analyze all these dreams for another this voluminous dream material may serve to present prevent work in the more fruitful era of analysis and then it is likely that all this material will be singularly obscure such patients must be taught to stop searching after their dreams to learn let 
let their dreams come to them to let their unconscious make the choice of which dreams should enter consciousness this teaching itself may be quite difficult demanding as it does that it does that the patient give up a certain amount of control and assume a more passive relationship in his or her mind but once a patient learns to make no conscious effort to clutch at dreams the remembered dreams material dreams decreases in quality but it dramatically increases in quality the result is that the patient's dreams these gifts from the unconscious now no longer sought for it elegantly facilitates the healing process that is desired if we look at the other side of the coin however we find that there are many patients who enter psychotherapy with absolute no awareness of the understanding of the immense value that dreams can be to them consequently they discard from consciousness all dream material as worthless and unimportant these patients must first be taught to remember their dreams and then how to appreciate and perceive the treasure within them to utilize dreams effectively we must work to be aware of their value and to, to take advantage of them when they come to us and we must also work sometimes as not seeking or expecting them we must let them be true gifts i know the value of a dream for real for real so if you remember them have a journal next to your bed and write them down for real for real because dreams have meanings and don't try and force this the process you know if you happen to dream just wake up write it down before you forget it and then go back to it and if you have repeating dreams that's another story but you know if you're one of my patreon collective you know what i'm talking about so let's go <laughs> anyway let's carry on with this so it is with grace we have already seen that dreams are but one form or way in which the gifts of grace are given to us the same paradoxical approach should be employed towards all the other forms sudden insights premonitions and a whole host of synchronistic serendipitous events and to all and to all love everyone wants to be loved but first we must make ourselves lovable we must prepare ourselves to be loved we do this by becoming ourselves loving disciplined human beings if we seek to be loved if we expect to be loved this cannot be accomplished we will be dependent and grasping not genuinely loving but when we nurture ourselves and others without without a primary concern of finding rewards then we will have become lovable and the rewards of being loved which we have not sought will find us so it is with human love and so it is with god's love a major purpose of this section on grace has been to assist through those on the journey of spiritual growth to learn the capacity of serendipity and let us redefine serendipity not as a gift itself but as a learned capacity to recognize and utilize the gifts of grace when we which are given to us from behind the realms of our conscious will with this capacity we will find that our journey of spiritual growth is guided by the invisible hand and unimaginable wisdom of god with infidelity great infinitely sorry with with infinitely 
greater accuracy than that of which our unaided conscious will is capable. Self-guided, the journey becomes even faster. One way or another, these concepts have been set forth before by Buddha, by Christ, by Leo Tees, among many others, and what I call ascended masters, okay, if that, if that makes more sense to you. Anyway, the originality of this book results from the fact that I have arrived at this same meaning through the particular individual by way of my 20th century life. If you require greater understanding than these modern footnotes have to offer, then by all means proceed on return to the ancient text. Seek greater understanding, understanding, but do not expect greater detail. There are many who, by virtue of their passivity, dependency, fear and laziness, seek to be shown every inch of the way and have it demonstrated to them that each step will be safe and worth their while. This cannot be done, for the journey of spiritual growth requires courage and initiative and independence of thought and action. While the words of the prophets and the assistance of grace are available, the journey must still be travelled alone. No teacher can carry you there. There are no preset formulas. Rituals are only learning aids. They are not the learning. Eating organic food, saying five Hail Marys before breakfast, praying facing east or west, or going to church on Sunday will not take you to your destination. No words can be said. No teaching can be taught that will relieve spiritual travellers from the necessity of picking their own ways, working out with effort and anxiety their own paths through the unique circumstances of their own life towards the identification of their individual selves with God. Or if you want to call it source or divine or the universe, whatever you want to call it, but it's the same thing, okay? Even when we truly understand these matters, the journey of spiritual growth is still so lonely and difficult that we often become discouraged. The fact that we live in a scientific age, while helpful in some respects, serves in others to foster discouragement. We believe in the mechanical principles of the universe, not in miracles. Through our science, we have come to learn that our dwelling place is but a single planet of a single star lost amidst one galaxy among many. And just as we seem lost amidst the enormity of the external universe, so science has also led us to develop an image of ourselves as being helplessly determined and governed by internal forces not subject to our will. By chemical molecules in our brain and conflicts in our unconscious that compel us to feel and to behave in certain ways when we are not even aware of what we are doing. So the replacement of our human myths by scientific information has caused us to suffer a sense of personal meaninglessness. Meaninglessness. <laughs> That's a long word. Of what possible significance could this be as individuals or even as a race buffeted about by individual chemical and psycho and psychological forces we do not understand invisible in a universe whose dimensions are so large that even our science cannot measure them yet it is that same science that has in certain ways assisted me to perceive the reality of the phenomenon of grace i have attempted to transmit this that perception for once we perceive the reality of grace our understanding of ourselves as meaningless and insignificant is shattered 
The fact that these exist beyond ourselves and our conscious will, will a powerful force that nurtures our growth and evolution is enough to turn our notions of self-insignificance topsy-turvy. For the existence of this force, one we perceive it indicates with incontrovertible certainty that our human growth, spiritual growth is of the utmost importance to something greater than ourselves. This thing we call God. The existence of grace is prima facie evidence, not only of the reality of God, but also of the reality that God's that God's will is devoted to the growth of the individual human spirit. What once seems to be fairy tale turns out to be the reality. We live our lives in the eye of God and not as the proprietary, but as the centre of his vision his concern. It is probable that the universe as we know it is but a single stepping stone towards the entrance to the kingdom of God, but we are hardly lost in the universe. To the contrary, the reality of grace indicates humanity to be at the centre of the universe. This time and space exists for us to travel through. When my patients lose sight of their significance and are disheartened by the effort of the work we are doing, I sometimes tell them that the human race is in the midst of making an extra, an evolutionary leap. Whether or not we succeed in that leap, I say to them, is your personal responsibility and mine. The universe, this stepping stone, has been laid down to prepare a way for us. But we ourselves must step across it one by one. Through grace we are helped not to stumble and through grace we know that we are being welcomed. What more can we ask? So, afterward, in the time since its initial publication, I have been fortunate enough to receive many letters from readers of The Road Less Travelled. They have been extraordinary letters, intelligent and articulate without exception, and they have also been extremely loving, as well as expression appreciation. Most of them have contained additional griffs, appropriate poetry, useful quotes from other authors, nuggets of wisdom and tales of personal experience. These letters have enriched my life. It has become clear to me that there is a whole network, far more vast than I have dared to believe, of people across the country who have quietly been proceeding for long distance along the less travelled road of spiritual growth. They have thanked me for diminishing that sense of loneliness on the journey. I thank them for the same service. A few readers have questioned my faith in the fallacy of psychotherapy. I did suggest that the quality of psychotherapists varies widely, and I continue to believe that most of them who fail to benefit from work with a competent therapist do, does do so because they lack the taste and will for the vigours of that work. However, I did neglect to specify that a small majority of people, perhaps 5%, have psychiatric problems of a nature that does not respond to psychotherapy and that may even be more made worse by the deep introspection involved. Anyone who has succeeded in thoroughly reading and understanding this book is slightly is highly unlikely to be to belong to that that five percent. And in any case, it is the responsibility of the competent therapist to carefully and sometimes gradually discern those few patients who should not be led into psychotherapeutic work. 
and to lead them instead towards other forms of treatment that can be quite beneficial. But but who is comp- who is a competent psychotherapist? Several readers of The Road Less Travelled who moved in the direction of seeking psychotherapy have written to inquire how one should go about choosing the right therapist. Distinguishing between the competence and the incompetent, my first piece of advice is to take the choice seriously. It is one that is the most important decisions you can make in your lifetime. Psychotherapy is a major investment, not only of your money, but even more of your valuable time and energy. It is what stockbrokers would call a high-risk investment. If the choice is right, it will pay off handsomely in spiritual dividends and you cannot even have dreamed of. While it is not likely you will be actually harmed if you make the wrong choice, you will, however, waste most of the valuable money, time and energy you would have put into it. So don't hesitate to shop around and don't hesitate to trust your feelings or intuition. Usually on the basis of a single interview with a therapist, you will be able to pick up either good or bad vibes. If the vibes are bad, pay your single fee and move on to another. Such feelings are usually intangible, but they may emanate from small tangible clues. At the time I entered therapy in 1966, I was very concerned and critical about the majority of America's involvement in the Vietnam War. In his writing room, my therapist had copies of Ramparts and the New York Review of Books, both literal journals with anti-war editorial policies. I had begun to pick up good vibes before I even set eyes on him. But more important than your therapist's political leanings, age or sex is whether he or she is generally caring person. This too you can often sense quickly, although the therapist should not fall all over you with, with kindly reassurances and snap commitments. If therapists are caring, they will also be cautious, disciplined and usually reserved, but it should be possible for you to intuit whether the reserve cloak warms warmth or or coldness. Since therapists will be interviewing you to see whether they want you for a patient, it is wholly appropriate for you to be interviewing them in return. If it is relevant to you, don't hold back from asking what the therapist's feelings are about such issues as women's liberation or homosexuality or religion. You are entitled to honest, open and careful answers. In regard to other types of questions, such as how long therapy might last or whether your skin rash is psychosomatic, you are usually well off to trust a therapist who says that he or she does not know. In fact, educated and successful people in any profession who admit ignorance are generally the most expert and trustworthy. A therapist's ability bears very little relationship to any credentials he or she might have. Love and courage, wisdom cannot be certified by academic degrees. For instance, board-certified psychists and therapists with the most credentials undergo sufficiently rigorous training so that one can be relatively certain of not falling into the hands of a charlatan. But a, psycho- a psychiatrist is not necessarily any better a therapist than a, a, a psycho- lo- psychologist, a social worker or a minister or even as good. Indeed, two of the very greatest therapists I know have never even graduated from college. 
Word of mouth is often the best way to get started on your search for a psychotherapist. If you have some friend you respect who has been pleased with the services of a particular therapist, why not begin on that recommendation? Another way, particularly advisable if your symptoms are severe or you are physical, you have physical difficulties as well, would be to start with a therapist. By virtue of their medical training, psychotherapists are used the most extensive therapists, but they are also in the best position to understand all angles of your situation. At the end of the hour, after the therapist has had a chance to learn the dimensions of your problem, you can ask him or her to refer you to a less expensive non-medical therapist if appropriate. The best psychiatrist will usually be quite willing to tell you which lay practitioners in the community are particularly competent of course if the doctor gives you good vibes and is willing to take you on as a patient you can stick with him or her if you are financially strapped and have no medical insurance coverage for outpatient psychotherapy your only option may be to seek assistance as a government or hospital supported psychiatric psychiatric or mental health clinic there is a there there a fee will be set according to your means and you can rest pretty well assured that you will not fall into the hands of a quirk. On the other hand, psychotherapy at clinics have a tendency to be very superficial and your capacity to choose your own therapist may not be quite, may be quite limited. Nevertheless, it often works out very well. These brief guidelines have perhaps not been as specific as readers might like, but the central message is that since psychotherapy requires an intense and psychologically intimate relationship between two human beings, nothing can relieve you of the responsibility for personally choosing a particular human being whom you can trust to be your guide. The best therapist for one person may not be the best for another. Each person, therapist and patient, is unique and you must rely on your own unique intuitive judgment. Because there is some risk involved, I wish you luck. And because the act of entering psychotherapy with all that it involves is an act of courage, you have my admiration. Signed, M. Scott Peck, Bliss Road, New Preston, and I think that's Connecticut. But I'm not an American. It's spelled C O double N and it's got a period dot O six seven 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 March nineteen seventy nine. And that's the end of that book, people. I hope you enjoyed that. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It gave some serious views and different ways of, of approaching spiritual growth and how patience you can tell from patience who are going through spiritual, and he calls it laziness, he calls it people just passing the buck, but do you know what, my review of this book, even though it is old, and I'm going to look at when it was first printed, yeah, copyright 1978 by M. Scott Peck, MD, yeah, so it was 90, and then it was first, the first edition is 1980, second edition is 1998, so I'm guessing this is 1998, but it does say copyright 1978. So I don't know if this is the 98 version or the 97 version. Anyway, that is that, people. So I hope you enjoyed that. And join me tomorrow where we're going to start reading The Reluctant Buddha. And I'll give you a little synopsis of this one. It says here, a personal look, it's called The Reluctant Buddha, a personal look at Buddhism in the modern world. And it's by William Woodard. 
okay and William Woodard is actually an actor director I mean he's American isn't he but he's but I recognize him instantly and let me see if there's any forward notes that I can give you a little bit or should I just leave that till tomorrow because I'm going to do an introduction anyway so um Daikiso Akida so it says yes a year ago Bill Gates was reported I'm not going there I'm just giving you, let me just see if there's a little synopsis I can give you that is telling you a little bit about the book without going crazy. Let's just see. Uh, right, so a note on the author. I'm going to give you that bit quick. It says, producer, director, writer, presenter, William Woodard's career covers the entire spectrum of television production, but he has experienced several other careers in an eventual life. Oxford Gap graduate, a fighter pilot with the RAF, a troubleshooter for an oil company in the jungles of Borneo and the desert of Oman, a social scientist working on corporate social responsibilities with major international organisations in Europe and the USA. Finally, an award-winning television presenter and writer producing documentary programmes for most of the world's foremost networks in Europe and America. Match travelled twice married four children and a lifetime interest in comparative religion among many other things he writes i came to buddhism with the deepest skepticism about its appropriateness or relevance in a modern western environment i am wholly convinced of its profound value to any life anywhere i see that initial skepticism as perhaps my primary qualification for writing this book and i'm telling you I was the biggest skeptic because when I grew up, my mum was my my well Jamaicans in general they're into the Church of God thing where you're doing the jump up and you're speaking tongues and all sorts of nonsense, and to me, I had a really bad experience as a Christian, in later life. Okay, I had a really bad experience, put me right off, but although i am i'm a i what i call a spiritual person it was nicholson buddhism that brought me to spirituality in the first place and nicholson buddhism in particular although it's a philosophy is a way of life for people okay and because we pray morning and night sometimes i neglect to do it at night because i am tired but it's a form of meditation i could go deep but basically it's, it's Buddhism for the modern, modern day person and it teaches you to go within and find happiness within and love yourself regardless of your flaws. And if you're a spiritual person or you're into spirituality, the two coincide. It's like the same thing. You have to find the love for yourself before you can find love for anybody else. So it's a way of, this Buddhism, especially Nietzsche's Buddhism, is a way of concentrating on yourself and find happiness wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, is to find the happiness in everything because there is always somebody worse off than you. So I'm going to shut up because this book has got me already. And I've not, do you know, I've had this book for about five years and not read it. Okay, so this book is new to me as it is you. But, you know, if you really want to go deep, I can give you the basics of Nietzsche's and Buddhism, but the book will explain it more and he will explain it from his point of view. So until next time, take care. <laughs>